If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, ready for a clap. On one. Okay. Wait, on one? You on mean three, two, clap or three, two, one, clap? Three, two, clap. Okay, three, what? two. <laughs> right, we'll, we'll do that, we'll do that. Don't overthink it, don't overthink method. it. Yeah, right. Three, two. <laughs> <laughs> Give me another right. one just in case, right? We'll All right, let's three, just two, do one. a normal one. Okay. Right. So three, three, two, one, two, clap. One. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, all right, three, two, one, clap. Sorry, I totally, totally fucked that. I think <laughs> I fucked that as well. Uh, yeah, you did. Right, this is going to be three, two, one, okay? Okay. Three, two, one. Good. Hi, people of the world. Before we get this episode, uh, this this highbrow episode of the podcast underway, we badly need clapping lessons. Uh, we're going to have to spend some money and time working on that. Uh, the other thing we need to spend money on is this podcast and the domain and all the associated costs. I think we're breaking even these days. If anybody feels like helping us a wee bit since we're approaching our third year, that'd be lovely. Uh, the pubs are shut right now and I think I've suggested in the past a really, really nice way to look at it is if you bumped into us in the pub and you were like, oh, hey, I listen to your podcast. That's pretty good. Do you want a beer? Yeah, I do want a beer. So, <laughs> why don't you buy us the equivalent of a beer a month? Uh, what's that, like, four quid? And There's only turn. one of us getting a beer then. Yeah, well, you don't you don't really drink that much now, do you? Mm, I've started drinking in isolation. <laughs> <laughs> well, David's got to start practising for his wedding, his new wedding. Uh, so we'll maybe give him a third of a pint but in return for that third of a pint you then get all the perks that come with our Patreon pricing scheme uh, and you can always buy us more than that if you want more perks but uh, we would really appreciate it if we could get even 5% of the audience to give us you know, the equivalent of a pint a month we'd be in a much better place so give it some thought, 
go to patreon.com forward slash unsung pod. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, finally. And please just sign up. You only have to do it once. So, some two new subs this week. Mr. Alan Williams, thank you very much for your, your, your lovely donation. Hopefully it continues. And Alexander Lannerstead, thank you very much for your donation as well. I'm sorry if I've butchered your surname. Thank you. It's, it's, that's a total Game of Thrones name. <laughs> Cheers. Let's get on with this uh, intellectual shit. That's my Mark Maron intro. Hey, folks! Hey, folks! <laughs> uh, but a, a lot less, a lot more American and a, a bit more whiny. Um, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. Uh, we're joined with our usual crew here. How are we all doing? Uh, all Tip right, top. thank you. Mark, you've uh, you've almost got big hair, in very commas. My hair is so big, it looks like a hat. <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty vast. Your hair just looks like your hair, Chris. Yeah. I mean, it's getting pretty long, and I can... Put it back now. I've been going uh, for a mullet. So oh, yeah, you've shaved, shaved above the ears, let yeah. it go in at the back. It's that uh, brassic look, isn't it? Uh, that's the vibe, yeah. <laughs> I'm digging it. What were you feeling this week? Um. <laughs> uh, white guilt? Is that, <laughs> guilt, is that yeah. what we were all feeling? White guilt. <laughs> I don't want to be the guy who said it, but it's definitely true. Um, our, all guilt matters. Our JDL episodes seem to be unfortunately timed, or fortunately timed, depending on how you look at them. Quite the opposite, yeah, it's, it's fort- it was well timed. But um, through very unfortunate circumstances, and it's been an eye opening week, I'm pretty sure. I've had a couple of weeks for it, I'm pretty sure everyone. Yeah, it's probably not been that eye opening for <laughs> people of colour. Pe- people who listen <laughs> to this podcast, I think, yeah, fairly sure are mostly people, white. People who host this podcast who are almost entirely white yeah almost, almost entirely white <laughs> I think what what seemed the most appropriate thing to do and it's another happy coincidence is that after two weeks of uh, platforming uh, an exceptional and I would say revolutionary black artist <laughs> uh, we, we can we can make up for that for our alt-right contingent uh, by covering an old white conspiracy theorist guy <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean his opinion truly counts and it's 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 not heard enough yeah um, yeah so this week we're going to cover an artist called Lubomir Melnik A Ukrainian, well, he claims Ukrainian, mention that in a minute, uh, a pianist, and I mean, kind of a savant, really. The guy's pretty exceptional. I've been really wanting to cover this for a long time. I mentioned it a wee bit in the Apocalypse mixtape that we did, um, but there's, as I'm sure you guys have discovered, there's so much to say about him uh, beyond even just his music. It's, it's a pretty astonishing character. And there's a lot to get through as well, so I don't want to dilly-dally by talking too much about what we were watching on TV. I mean, if you saw anything great, speak up. I watched Left Behind last night, the crazy, quasi-Christian fundamentalist film about the rapture. That was garbage. Yeah, that is garbage. <laughs> I, I've seen Waterworld. I watched Waterworld in a, net, a Netflix party Un- with a couple of my friends. Underrated. Uh, Un- Waterworld is 
it was yeah wrongly uh, defiled. I think critics. so. At the time, I think so. Um, I mean, defiled as opposed to defamed. <laughs> oh, a bit of both. Don't get me wrong. Some of the dialogue is fucking shocking, and it's got a really humming ending as well. But the production design's amazing. And Dennis Hopper is utterly superb, and it just chewing all the scenery, all the it expensive also, scenery. <laughs> it also begins with Kevin Costner drinking his own piss, Fish which man. all movies should really start. I think I saw maybe his first movie the other uh, like last night as well. I watched a, a kind of nuclear apocalypse film called Te- uh, Testament from 1982, maybe 1983. Pretty bleak stuff, I have to be honest. <laughs> really bleak stuff, in fact. Uh, I downloaded a late 80s uh, Costner called uh, No Way Out last night. Which oh, that's, I watch. that's a great legendary. movie. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, good, my, it's a good film. Honestly, my, I've I've walked in on my dad watching that film maybe twenty times. <laughs> One of those. It's a dad movie, Dave. It's a dad yeah, it's movie. a proper dad movie. I remember it when I was wee, and my dad loved it. It's Wine like a and fire and that. Yeah, <laughs> a few good men. Oh, I love that film. Um, talking about not being able to handle the truth, Lubomir uh, <laughs> Melnik. <laughs> Aye, so uh, who is this big lad? No, no, big beefy hairy lad. That, that's a, that is a quality transition. Come on, I did enjoy that. Yeah, it was good. That. That's good. <laughs> Um, okay, so we'll, we'll set the scene with this guy I've tried to structure my notes here But, I mean, as you can probably see From what I'm going to hold up to the camera That's a jungle um, It's like his jungle brain award. <laughs> <laughs> uh, So we'll just kind of go through a wee bit of the, the backdrop to this guy um, we're, we're going to focus on the album Corollaries from 2013 Today, I believe Lubomir Melnick has composed 120 different pieces, and I mean, you're talking about, oh, I don't know, some of these are 20 minutes long, and given that the guy holds a world record for the most notes played in a second, I would absolutely dread to try and work out the the number of notes that he has committed to memory. There's something not right about me. He's like definitely some form of Rain Man. Uh, Uncut magazine actually referred to him as a Rasputin-esque poster boy for the post-classical scene. Yeah. He started in the 70s, really, uh, in his career, playing in, in Paris. Uh, but he isn't from Paris. He was he was actually born in Munich, in Germany. I didn't know that. I, th- I thought he was just out-and-out out Ukrainian. But he was born to Ukrainian parents in Munich, and he's always claimed like Ukrainian identity. That's that's where he really feels as his home, uh, his spiritual home, which I think is a word that's kind of appropriate to him. And he moved to Canada, I think it was Winnipeg. Winnipeg, where um, Venetian Snares is also from. So, something about that place. I'm sure they're buds. And uh, he spent a lot of of time there. Uh, But as I say, he then ended up in Paris, uh, working in the Paris Opera, I believe. And he was sort of playing for modern dance. Uh, He he was accompanying modern dance classes with a, a woman called Carolyn Carlson, who was, I mean... If that's your field, I'm sure you're like, oh yeah, 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 know her. I'd never heard of her, but that's just... A- he was also a janitor there too. <laughs> hey, we've all done a wee bit to make ends meet, like like, like <laughs> us right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, really interesting dude though, when he was at uh, university, college, university in Canada, he, he studied music, which is pretty obvious, but he also studied philosophy and Latin. And uh, certainly the philosophy aspect of it will go on to inform a fair amount of his music and his outlook on life, but also a lot of his comments, 
later in life for, for, for better and worse, I think. Uh, in 1985, uh, in Sweden, Lubomir Melnik was filmed as part of an attempt at two world records, I believe. He, he got both. Uh, the first one is that he played, I think what's calculated as, 19 and a half notes per second per hand. That's crazy. Hand. That's quite a lot of notes, really. Absolutely <laughs> mind-blowing. Puts Dragon uh, Force to shame. <laughs> and a, a lot of people will be like, uh, that. it's actually not possible. I've actually said it to a couple of people recently. They were like, it's not possible. Well, I'll, I'll go into it a wee bit more detail. It is possible. And it's been done because he was filmed doing it. Uh, I, I don't know if they, they slowed down the footage to count it or something like that. Um, anyway, he also got the record for doing uh, between 13 and 14 notes per second for uh, per hand for one solid hour as well. And so when I say that this guy's done 120 pieces of music, some of them up to like 20 odd minutes each, just the sheer number of the points of information, points of data that are in his his brain are absolutely staggering. And I really don't, I, I really don't think he's a particularly normal guy. <laughs> there's, there's some really, really extreme about him in a lot of ways. Um, which, when we talk about his personality, that'll maybe come into focus a wee bit more. I mean, it's to be perfectly frank. I think I maybe mentioned this to you guys in a private message, but when I found myself uh, today googling Cossack sorcerers, I knew that this was definitely <laughs> going to be <laughs> this was definitely going to be an unconventional episode. But um, that that whole thing about playing nineteen and a half notes per second per hand, um, he compares the style to a martial art. And I, I kind of get this, so I'll, I kind of looked into this a wee bit. Um, I, you should just uh, we should mention that he has named his style, his genre, um, as continuous music. Exactly. Um, yes. He seems so to be he, the only exponent of living music, and he he likes to. He, his music may sound minimalist or post classical or neoclassical, um, but he he describes it as continuous music. Yeah, so both this from was, a performance and structural perspective. This this was not something he's, he claims that he set out to try and develop, but it's something that sort of took hold of him as he was growing as a pianist and as a, as a, as a performer and a composer. Um, I think the the first album mentions uh, in a continuous uh, piano in the continuous form. I think is how they put it. But this just became he he started calling it continuous music. And as Dave says, he's the only person that he feels plays continuous music. He says classical music is distinctly different. It's all to do with the fluidity of movement. Um, he actually, I th- think he, he touched on that Bruce Lee quote: uh, "Be as water." And it's all to do with the complete relaxation of your body. I mean, classical pianists, as I was saying earlier on, that you know, it sounds mad that it would be 19 and a half notes per second per hand, but classical pianists, good ones, can get to about 13 or 14 notes per second. Not for long periods of time, but they can do it. And this guy has just been training for nothing but this for a long, long time. Uh, when he talks about his hands during the process, he talks about changing steel rods into clouds of water. In the days when he was really training up for it, he would find that after he'd been playing, he couldn't lift a cup because there was no strength. He was, his hands were so relaxed. Uh, he had to get them into such a condition where they were completely fluid and there was no resistance that he, that he had to wait for them to kind of go back to normal. Uh, like The movement of each finger as well sort of aids the next finger. So it's, like, it's such a... 
it's such a fast and precise action that the angle of one finger will set the route for the next finger. The weight of that finger will pull the next finger. It's it it's so so incredibly precise and fast. It's a very very hard thing to try and get your head around. Um, and, and to give you some like, comparison as well. Like, the world record for typing the alphabet, including a space between all the letters, so that's that's uh, 51 keystrokes, is 3.4 seconds, which means that Lubomir Melnick's almost three times faster than that on a piano, given that a piano has weighted keys and that the keys are much you know further apart. Uh, I mean, the guy has taken this to an extreme that I think is really, really difficult to kind of comprehend in normal parameters. As I said, he compares that to a sort of form of martial art. There's a great quote where he describes it uh, in reference to uh, Kung Fu, Tai Chi and Cossack magic, which is how I ended up uh, Googling (laughs) Cossack sorcerers. I I found out some pretty interesting shit about Cossack magic and I've got a little uh, little brief game for you guys here, right? Uh, Cossack magic and Cossack sorcery uh, is basically a Ukrainian martial art of sorcery, apparently. Uh, and he says that it perhaps even succeeded Shaolin monks or Japanese ninjas in terms of the skill level, right? Uh, in fact, no, I took that quote from uh, ancientorigins.net. Feel free to go and have a look. I think they were known as the, the Zaporizhian army, Zaporizhian army. I, can't, I don't know how to pronounce that. But they were, they were around about the 1600s uh, in like Poland and southern Ukraine and, you know, different areas of kind of Eastern Europe. And they had special skills, it turns out. Now, I think what would be good is if we uh, ranked these special skills uh, out of 10. I, okay. Yeah, I'm totally into that. <laughs> okay, so special skill number one, guys, is to find and hide treasures. I mean, it's basic, but <laughs> it's number two, right? I think that's pretty weak. I give that a three. To find and to hide treasures is not. A, <laughs> that's that's not a level of mysticism or sorcery. No, I wouldn't have said to find though. To, to find. find. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's okay, but uh, <laughs> uh, to withstand hot rods. Hmm. Yeah. Depends. How long and how hot? <laughs> <laughs> I think I thought it was a little bit better. I gave that a five. No, I mean, uh, yes, yeah, it's something. You know, you could just at least it's a physical people. thing that you're proving uh, to other people. Put, it, put it this way: if you were in the pub and you'd had a few, you could show off to the table by withstanding some hot rods. Just can I just interject there? I was in <laughs> um, Glasgow's finest establishment, Broadcast, about three or three years ago, I think, and the. These guys came in and sat next to us. There was about eight people at this table, and the, they were pretty pissed. One of them used to be in a, a unnamed Glasgow uh, hardcore band. But anyway, they said, "Oh, this my mate. He uh, he can he can break spa- he can break spanners in half." <laughs> and we we were all like, "Ah, okay, cool. That's hot, that's fun." Hot spanners? No, Normal just spanners. Yeah. And then. Um, he was like, well, we were like very, fairly nonplussed. But then he's like, I've got a bag. And he brought out a, lot, a bag of small spanners. And then he just started snapping them in half at the pub. And I, I, I really wanted him to go away. But yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I wonder if he was spanners. a Ukrainian Cossack um, sorcerer. Jesus Christ, he could have been. Yeah. 
I mean, I heard they, they do tend to go to Broadcast. <laughs> well, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's got the vibe. Um, so, uh, the next skill that was on the list was uh, change the weather. So that was pretty good. Yeah, that's that pretty good. I would give that a nine. Yeah, that is good. I mean, science... especially if you live in Eastern Europe. Get a bit drizzly. Yeah, I mean, the Chinese government can now do that. They did that for the Olympics, I think. So it is scientifically possible. So, but you know, I'll give it. Anyway. <laughs> All right, this one did. I mean, this one open castle doors with their bare hands. I mean, mm. that's just opening a door, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know it's a big door, but you know, <laughs> it's got a handle. You use your bare hands to open the door in any case I would have imagined unless it's like an automatic door and I don't imagine they had was in the 16th century Ukraine yeah I'm giving that a one yeah I give it a zero I think one's generous uh this one confused me I give this a question mark at a 10 uh float on the floor in boats as if on the sea <laughs> yep uh yep <laughs> I don't know what that means <laughs> float on the floor in boats as if on the sea does that mean just put a boat on the ground and sit in it and pretend you're in the sea I don't really know. Does it mean, like, <laughs> submerge yourself half in a solid floor? I don't know. I'm unsure I mean, about that one. I put it this way, I don't think you'd catch a Shaolin monk doing that kind of shit, but... No, no, no. Uh, this was good. Cross rivers on drugs. On drugs? <laughs> <laughs> on drugs. Uh, I thought you said on drugs. I was like, hey, I've done that. <laughs> Cross rivers on rugs. Yeah, that's all right. I mean... You could like a good sorcerer would just cross river on feet, <laughs> just just walk over water. You know that's what Jesus, the OG sorcerer, did. So lazy, lazy, lazy Jesus, four twenty yeah. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, teleport ten out of yeah. ten. Thought that was a good one. Oh, I mean, yeah, full sci-fi marks for that one. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, I didn't get this one. New psychotherapy. I mean, that is genuinely Whoa. down there. New it was old psychotherapy, so we, we can't make a comparison to actually know if it's any good or not. No, 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 no. New with a K. Or right, a new, new psychotherapy. All <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, right. That's a, that's a shrug yeah. out of ten. They're ahead, they're ahead of their time, though. Well, yeah. Well, when is yeah? when was this? Uh, this is like 1600s, man. So, I mean, this is well before Freud. Yeah, I guess. I mean, no... Trepanning there or anything, so I was <laughs> going up to the going up to the king. Do you fancy your ma? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this this one's not bad, although they weren't specific. So they could apparently catch a bullet. So that's potentially like an eight or a nine out of ten. Except they didn't make it clear with what. So like with her face, <laughs> in which case that's a zero. Out of 10. <laughs> yeah, and if it. it also depends if it, the bullet had been fired or if it was just fallen off <laughs> a shelf. I never even thought about that. That could be in the fine print. Yeah, bullet yeah. can't be fired. Yeah, bullet can, must be toppled from <laughs> higher surface. I, I mean, it turns out that other than teleporting and changing the weather, I can do everything that a 1600s Zaporithian Cossack sorcerer can do. Plus, you have uh, a kettle. You didn't have a kettle. <laughs> totally. So. So anyway, um, the 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 art of going back to Lubomir Melnik from the from the weird Eastern European monk guys, the style of Lubomir Melnik often sounds like what you call an arpeggiator. He's like a human arpeggiator. Yeah. Yeah. 
Did you guys get that from what you heard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can play a lot of notes. You can play five notes on the piano in a one or basically because you just go, you play a chord and you slightly delay your tapping. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot of chords and arpeggiating and stuff like that. But he's, I mean, it's it is incredibly complex. I just, I, I suppose we should, before we go into the actual sound of the music and stuff like that, somebody will say, you know, just because he can play a lot of notes doesn't mean that he should. <laughs> you know, you talk about Ewingy Malmsteen. You know, just because he's really fast at guitar doesn't mean that the music is going to be beautiful. But yeah. Lubomir then goes beyond just technicalities and. Um, well, that's interesting because that actually kind of quite effortlessly in, in an entirely unrehearsed manner leads me on to my next point, which is why does he play that many notes? And this whole notion of continuous music, it's, it's not just about... In fact, it's actually very little to do with the specific notes uh, in the sense of like a traditional melody or a line or the sort of uh, annotated music you would see... Uh, a pianist playing normally he's not really necessarily concerned with a particular pattern of notes that creates like a nice little tune that you can sort of identify and sing he's first first and foremost he's trying to sweep those notes up into something that's kind of uh, an aggregate so it's sort of like pointillism where you step back from the the paintings that were done with tiny 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 little dots uh, or like a magic eye even I think is probably even a better example he's trying to get you to step back from that not to see the tiny little patterns and little incremental things that constitute that but to look through those patterns and see the song that lies beyond by the way for the life of me I've never seen a fucking magic eye picture and I think you're all just making that shit up but I'm going to use it as an example <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's that's maybe a better analogy for it is that he's trying to get you to look through the individual notes that's not what he wants you to focus on I mean, he gets really, really deep into the, his, his descriptions of that. Um, but a, a big part of it is to do with uh, the resonance and the harmonics that come off that. So the harmonics are not necessarily the note you're playing. So if you're playing a C, that's fine. But there'll be certain aspects of the string, the instrument itself, the room, that will in some way modulate qualities of that sound and you'll find that other notes appear in very subtle ways so if you're ever mixing records you can you can actually hear when somebody's struck a chord but you can sort of hear a complimentary note in the background you're like where's that coming from and it's maybe the resonance of the the, sh- the guitar itself it's maybe the the resonance of the piano itself it's maybe something else in the room vibrating because of that sound but it's a it's a very interesting phenomenon and as a result Lubomir Melnick's pieces are tend to be written for specific instruments and I don't mean like pianos, guitars I mean like specific pianos specific instruments uh, because as he says you know no two pianos are the same you know the, the, the right down to the finest detail of the grains in the wood their construct whether they were made by the same person from the same wood from the same tree it doesn't matter there will still be so many tiny differences that will all have a cumulative effect in terms of changing the sound that you're hearing and in terms of changing the sounds that you're hearing that aren't even necessarily the main sound being played and I do get that, I really do get that I mean it's the reason that some people are absolutely in love with certain guitars it's the reason that some people are in love with certain rooms certain venues uh, I remember, like a lot of people love the barras in Glasgow and there's a resonant quality to that room that doesn't exist in other rooms so the same song in there will sound better than, than others. I mean, LCD Sound System, your favourite, Dave, uh, that's his favourite venue. Nick Cave, that's his favourite venue. And that's 
a lot. It's not just to do with the, the, the experience and the look of the room and the proximity of the crowd. It's to do with the sound. Do you know? The music. Funnily enough, going back to broadcast, I actually saw uh, Liturgy, the um, New York post hipster black metal band, in broadcast. And description. I mean, first of all, uh, their incredibly uh, white lead uh, guy, Hunter Hunt Hendricks, um, he talks about like his philosophy and his like he's sort of got an infamous um, manifesto called Transcendental yeah. Black Metal, where he, he talks about sonic aura washing over you that's you know beyond the, the main notes. And funnily enough, when I saw Liturgy, the best thing about them was that sort of sense of losing yourself and hearing the sounds bouncing off and like the weird little scrapes and things like that that are coming through the amps at really high uh, frequencies that aren't on the record and might not happen in other rooms but by happy accident worked um, and it they get slagged off a lot uh, and they are truly pretentious but I really enjoyed that gig from a very sonic perspective which is interesting no no absolutely and i think there's few things more exciting than going and seeing an artist who does take those kind of creative chances that's something that's certainly been drained out of a lot of music now it's very easily reproduced you get a lot of bands that will sit bands and very commas that will sound check simply by sending a usb stick ahead of them and getting it plugged out through the pa because they want that sound to be almost identical at every single venue yeah then you get people the opposite end of that spectrum like lubomir melnick who who is completely all about a Acoustic music, and I don't mean acoustic like guitars. I mean acoustic, as in he wants you to hear it in a room, in person, and all the imperfections and all the changes, uh, that and all the variations, sorry, are, that are available to you, to f- so that every performance is different, and that quality can make for some of the most truly like astonishingly affecting things you'll ever see, where where there is that element of chaos, of unpredictability where something can just take a good song and push it over the top to be an incredible song, whether it's you just so happen to get the perfect spot in the room where the reverb is beautiful, or the venue itself is really good. There's so many different ingredients, and and Lubomir Melnick, even just in the context of a single piano, really embraces that. He also uh, is at pains to say that uh, he doesn't really like playing in concert halls um, or like sort of like sound dampened theatres. To him, that's that's very counterintuitive. What he sees as being the optimum gig is in. He he actually mentioned factories. Uh, he mentioned uh, a church, cathedral, art galleries. Uh, yeah, art galleries. Um, I think he also mentioned castles at one point. Just places with really unpredictable and irregular uh, acoustic spaces. And and the the other ingredient he he also includes in that is that he. In his ideal scenario, the the audience would be mobile. While he's playing, the audience would be able to explore the space of the room as he's performing to hear different versions of these songs from different vantage points, to go up here, to go down there, to hear the reverb when they stand next to a wall, to go into the centre of the room and hear it quite balanced. All these very, very subtle but significant, you know, if if you're attuned to it, significant uh, variations. There's a really good... um Right, sound art programmer in Glasgow called uh, Cryptic, and they do quite a lot of interesting, like sort of sound installations and stuff like that with very exper- experimental performers. And quite often it is about 
finding the space in the room and finding mm. the differences and you know and letting the audience explore and I, yeah it's interesting that he's he also i i read in one of the interviews with him that he he doesn't know how he would manage it technologically but the idea of having speakers that move around really quickly oh, did you read that? It's crazy. Yeah. Watch yeah. the speakers to spin round the audience. Yeah. So that <laughs> uh, that's, that ties into his notion that he's sitting within a hurricane of music when he's playing. Like he feels that he's sort of it's a very transcendental moment for him. And when all those acoustic qualities are mixing, when all the harmonics uh, and the, the reverberations of the room and the floor and the piano, he says he really feels like he's in the midst of something. And you know, to him, time slows down. It's a it's a very very intense and sort of out of body experience for him and that that whole notion of the speaker spinning around the room, which is a fantastic thing just to imagine. That's to do with him trying to somehow use technology to replicate that experience for the audience and overwhelm mm. them somewhat because he says his music is all about him being overwhelmed by its performance. Mm. It channels through him rather than him composing it. Um, yeah. the, it's also a very mystic approach as well, right? It's got a very mystic approach to life in yeah. general. Um, just to, in, in terms of his technical approach, just one other thing that he does quite a lot is that he performs in two pianos. Um, for certain periods of his career, he's done that, certain albums, um, and it allows him to sort of mirror and get kind of contrapuntal in certain melodies using the same area of the, of the, the keyboard. Dave mentioned some of his interviews. His interviews are fascinating reading because Lubomir Melnick, if you watch videos of him, he comes across as an incredibly amiable guy. And anecdotally, I've, I've heard nothing but nice things about him in person. Like, he's meant to be lovely, and he seems lovely, and I've, I've seen him, and that's actually going to uh, inform a later part of this. But um, on the flip of that, in his interviews, on paper... He just seems so arrogant, like so incredibly mm-hmm. pretentious and arrogant. And, and to sort of, and now I want to qualify that. I'm not saying that he definitely is, but that, it, that it's a hard thing to get your head around. So, for example, he says that in history, there's a hierarchy of pianists. There are three kind of major musical divisions that exist currently. One of them is rock jazz, which he describes as slam bang playing. Uh, and he acknowledges that some people are fantastic at it, but he says that's the sort of bottom level of. P- uh, piano playing um, then there's classical where the player is a slave of the piano the player has to play the music and he has to hope that the piano allows him to play the music in the way that he wants it to, uh, to, uh, to come across and then there's continuous music now bear in mind that he's the only one that can play continuous music uh, that means he is the top of the hierarchy of pianists in the entire world that exist. Uh, he's said things like, nobody in history can do what I do. I mean, he is, uh, he's not shy. He's also described the difference between classical and his. In classical, the player is the slave of the piano. He says in continuous music, the piano is your lover, the piano is your slave, the piano is your glorious angelic friend. Um, and he says things like uh, the touch on the keys is like being God and letting it rain the keys release gentle birds that fly off into space totally weightless, cloud-like that disappear Um, and 
it's it's a really odd balance to strike because I can't emphasise how nice he seems when you see him talking. He, he, he just seems and he's very approachable. He's very open to doing interviews and things. But what he comes out with are really quite. Uh, you know, uh, obnoxious at times. Um, totally, yeah. I mean, he, he he got a lot of criticism for saying that it's sort of misquoted and it's hard to really get to the, the bottom of it. Uh, claims that uh, continuous music was the only real seismic change in the piano or music of the last 300 years. Now, clearly, that is a big claim. Um, he also <laughs> said he also said things like uh, Scarlatti plays the piano the same as Rick Maninoff did years later. Um, the sort of sense being that they were all variations on a theme where they were playing music using this device rather than unifying themselves with the device to create a, a form of music that can't be replicated, as I said. And I get that conceptually. It is, it is a significant distinction. It's very... Uh, arrogant, really. I guess there's no real way to dress it up, but I mean, he does. He does say that. Our, I mean, that is not to diminish how fantastic he thinks classical music is. He says there's dozens of examples of truly mind-blowing classical musicians and pianists. Although he does also say that uh, none have uh, there been no masters born after 1913. I'm not sure who he's yeah. referring to because I look back at 1913 and that. I don't know, it's like Britain and people like that were born, uh, were born then, so I'm not, I'm not really sure who he was getting at with that. He also yeah. says himself a master as well, though. Like, that's the thing. Like, he says there's been no masters on piano, and then he considers himself one as well, like in the Beethoven Mozart sense of the word. Yeah. Like, he considers himself to be right up there. He also has, there's like a weird twist on the arrogance where he sort of, he refutes it. I mean, he actually said, uh, I do not personally boast. God gave me this possibility. It's not me. It's not me who did it. So that that arrogance acquires like a quality of its boastfulness, but it's not boastfulness about his ability. It's boastfulness about the art that he feels he is channeling. Like he feels he's channeling something that's of a level that no one else has ever done. But it's mysticism again, right? Well, yeah, so again, that, that kind of smoothly brings us on to the next part of this guy that you can't really ignore, which is his beliefs, right? And his his beliefs for me are, I would say, highly problematic in places. They're sometimes just a little bit of an eye roll, but other times they're really, they're a lot to swallow. Um, and as, as I said, I've seen him live, and I didn't really, I knew he had some interesting ideas because it is kind of mark i think you were the same as me that you you struggled initially to uncover some of the more kind of extreme opinions that you put across didn't you and i'd just sort of been tipped off to it and i don't even know where but then i went to see him expecting him to be a slightly kooky sort of i know he's quite a left-wing kind of very liberal-minded kind of guy and i expected sort of some of the cliches that kind of hippie-ish cliche and as you said they probably did loads of acid or whatever in paris in the 70s um but what I saw when I went to see him, it was at a place called Platform in Glasgow, was a really quite uh, off-putting, like really quite off-putting to the point where I, I, there was a st- I wasn't sure if I was going to heckle or just walk out. It's difficult sometimes to separate the art from the artist, and I'm used to I'm used to having that conversation more in the black metal episodes, or a conversation about David Bowie, or Iggy Pop, or Led Zeppelin, or Kiss. You know, where you're talking about some lecherous dirtbag that was like trying to pull underage groupies or whatever. It's strange to have it in the context of somebody that is so right on and spiritually minded and 
extremely liberal that they're actually I mean off off the scale in terms of normality I mean and, and Mark I kind of made a, a kind of flippant comment to you about I mean tell me a great pianist that isn't a little bit insane but actually you know the more I thought about it after I said that I was like there's there's an incredible correlation between the greatest pianists of all time and severe mental illness it's not just penis I think a lot of oh, artists yeah. who are Ab- on that level like, absolutely sure. but I think for some reason in that world in particular there's a level of eccentricity that that accompanies that element of being a savant that this guy it seems to apply uh, to this guy in particular so he's he's vehemently anti-science um, to, and, and just to throw a couple of uh, quotes up uh, he describes the great science attack of the 1900s uh, the emperor of science has no clothes he says things like how do you explain sound passing over a wall and shooting down to my ear at 90 degrees as it cannot possibly pass through the wall I mean, which is just such a... It's its laughable, except this is a really gifted and intelligent man that's saying that. I mean, he, he talks about science's idiotic explanations that people dare not question. And I think the first thing that occurs to me and the, the thing I struggled to bite my tongue with at the show was uh, there is a group of people that question that and they're called scientists. And that's what science <laughs> is. Yeah, that's that's what science is. Science is not a religion. Science is a method. Which is challenging suppositions and looking for answers, and then if you don't see evidence of it, discarding them. And then maybe someone comes along and challenges you, discarding it, and maybe someone comes along and challenges your conclusions. That's science. Science is a process. Uh, his 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 sort of um, mischaracterization of it as a set of like beliefs and some kind of uh, structure of control is so perverse and such a straw man argument and I found it deeply offensive watching him live to see him say things like that I mean some of, them were, some of them were really quite laughable, I mean he was talking about he's, he's commented that you know pianos are living beings and I, I, I'll, I'll grant you that that's a very metaphorical thing and it's very poetic and in the sense of somebody with his abilities I, that's fine, I'll, I, I can totally look away from that but he talks about windmills and he's he's got an album called windmills and uh he he went at length to tell us i'm not i'm not telling you that they're metaphorically alive they're alive they're alive we just don't understand that they're alive but they are alive then he talked about rocks being alive and it it got really quite awkward in the room i was like Mm -hmm. i mean he was he he was i'm not it's not a metaphor i'm telling you they're alive we just Mm -hmm. we're just too stupid we don't understand it it's like a dimension that we can't see but they are alive they exist and they are alive um i I mean i can't really get across this is this is something that deeply troubles me anyway i mean you guys might have picked up that i've been trolling a 5g uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you've Facebook, got spare time while on furlough Facebook group for a, a few weeks Since I've been on furlough This 5G uh, conspiracy theory Facebook group Sprung up in Glasgow And surprise surprise Most of the accounts that set it up Are from the far flung, flung corners of the earth And when you reverse image search Loads of the, the, the profile pictures They're all ripped off the internet And you know Makeup models from Australia and things like this. I mean, it's, it's simply. I mean, it's it's proof of a lot of the allegations that were made about Russian hacking and disinformation and stuff. But unfortunately, Lubomir Melnik, in his own way, 
really aligns with a lot of that stuff because when I saw him live, he was criticising vaccines, he was criticising modern medicine, and and literally never has there been a time in modern history that it is least it is less acceptable to criticise the merits of immunology and epidemiology and the things that are saving millions of lives this very moment as we speak. It really, really, really rubbed me up the wrong way. I mean, it rubbed me up as uh, the wrong way and probably as much as it would have if I'd been watching someone from the far right say it. it there really was no... I, maybe even slightly more disappointed, if, if I'm honest. Maybe slightly more disappointed because I want to like him and I want to agree. And it's really, really strange to watch that unfold. Especially just, just now, going back over his stuff and reading what he's written. What did you guys think when you read the interviews? What, what was your gut reaction to it? It's like I said in the chat, and I did read through some of them. Was like, it just strikes me as being like a pretty innocuous old dude that's just an old fucking guy that doesn't get it anymore. Like he said, he will have said that in a room full of people who are who are savvy enough to know that it's definitely bollocks. Like he's not going to be troubling anyone with his Indian opinions at any point. Really, does that make them right? No, fucking absolutely does not make it right. Like you shouldn't be ignorant period, right? And he's very, very, very careful not to go the full hawk. And then if you said you've seen him live, he's very careful not to go the full way in his interviews. Because he obviously has some sense of self-awareness when he realises that what he's saying isn't acceptable. And you know what? Who does that as well? Like you said, all right as well. They'll hold back on some of their shittier opinions until they're with their pals. You know what I mean? Um, I, I think... Yeah, you're right. He, he, he is. Like, I was surprised, having seen him live and seen how outspoken he was, that there was there wasn't more evidence online of that, and also that there wasn't more discussion of it. Because even the people that interview him, they don't press him on any of these things at all. Like it's all about the music. It's all quite fawning, actually, which I thought was like a little bit distasteful. Um, and and it's and one even, thing. Even the the guys that he's worked with, you know, Peter Broderick and Niels Fram, and folk like that, are you know pretty much, you know, right on left-wing liberal folk and artists mm -hmm. and they're just working with him as an artist but, yeah, I can't imagine if they agree with him on much of the, the sort of anti-science stuff. So, I th there's an interesting tie-in, okay, because I don't I mean, I get what you're saying, Mark, that you're right, that probably maybe everybody in that room that went in one ear and out the other, there were a lot of eye rolls and uncomfortable shuffling of the feet, but I don't think that's a 100% rule by any means. Um, I mean, it's one thing when he's like ranting and raving about uh, Zeno's paradox, claiming that science scientists run a mile, ignoring the fact that like in the 4th century BC, Aristotle already responded to shit like that. But um, it's different when he's going up there and sort of chipping away at notions of consensus or, or maybe giving a sort of sense of solidarity to the people in the audience that used to be more isolated in their beliefs. This is what I find with that 5G website, right? Is that we all know the whole the whole phenomenon of networking and how it amplifies these kind of fringe beliefs. Used to be one or two people in any given town would sit at the end of the bar and mutter about the Jews or the lizard people or whatever the fuck it was that they were fixated on. And they would never really form that kind of... Uh, critical mass where they felt comfortable enough to go out and actually say this because everybody would be like shut the fuck up you weirdo but now 
online networking, especially given that these communities are particularly tight, has given a false sense uh, of um, consensus to, to these ideas. Now, David Icke is a great example of where that has worked. David Icke, when you, you see a, a, the vast majority of his things, he seems like it's quite sort of right on left to centre guy. He's really big in the environment. A lot of what he says about the environment makes a lot of sense until you find out that he's also said that, you know, uh, Schindler's List indoctrinates children with an unchallenged version of events and and rants and raves about 5G helping spread the coronavirus and you realise that these people with these beliefs aren't necessarily harmless uh, there is a, a sorry to fall victim to Godwin's law but you know ideas like fascism didn't survive purely because of foaming at the mouth frenzied fanatics, they survived because some people believe oh well that's kind of right, I suppose the Jews are kind of a bit of an, a bit annoying and why do they have so much money that's kind of shit, they survived because of that and he is another example of you know modern medicine, what's that doing and what's this with this and what's this with this and there's a thing called um, you heard, you've heard the QAnon right that whole conspiracy mm, yeah yeah. I mean, it's barking mad, laughable, thing, mm-hmm. except hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people subscribe Believe to it now in, in the mm-hmm. United States. And it's retweeted by people like Donald Trump. There's a thing called the New Age to QAnon pipeline, right? And what mm-hmm. it is, is one of the key recruiting tools for QAnonymous, right, is not anything to do with the right wing. It's nothing to do with, like, trying to get blacks out or segregation or any of that kind of junk. It's new age people. It's anti-vaxxers. It's that kind of thing. And the problem is that seems sort of harmless and, oh, she's such a nice wee woman, her. When you go on that 5G group on Facebook, one of the things that was most disturbing was to see otherwise sort of rational, normal, and even well-intentioned people disappearing down a pipeline and you knew where they were going to resurface. And there you go, they were resurfacing, retweeting people like David Icke. Then they were going even further and they were retweeting people that we all know are despicable. And I don't, I think Lubomir Melnik is a perfect example of that because he's so likeable and he's so brilliant as an artist. And yet he is contributing to a very slight gravitational pull that even if it's not pulling in you or I or even maybe anybody at that Glasgow show, it's pulling in hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, potentially, I mean, think about it though, like, unlike a lot of the other people you've mentioned, the one thing that he doesn't do is have a platform to voice that opinion, because he doesn't do it in interviews and he doesn't have any vocals or anything in his music. So it comes across as being quite, like, innocuous, you know? A key feature of every one of his live shows is that he introduces the shows with long-spoken segments, and between songs he does minutes upon minutes of discussion between each song for example it was between the the windmills songs that he did this extended rant about how windmills and rocks were alive and that scientists were idiots and that we just couldn't broaden our minds enough to understand that rocks were living things His live shows are a vessel, uh, are a vehicle for that. What's quite interesting is that the level of hitness 
that he has acquired, which is it's an an interesting phenomenon to me. And I mean, it's probably the only reason I listen to him, to be perfectly honest. But um, is because I heard of him through these kind of avenues. But this this is a guy that played the Great Escape in 2015. He played Primavera in 2016. Uh, he had a residency at Cafe Otto in London. He he played at the Hidden Notes Festival because he's he's on this label called Erased Tapes, um, along with Oliver Arnold's uh, Niels Fram, Rival Consoles, Winged Victory for the Sullen. Like hip bands, hip artists, as Dave says, left the centre, intelligent people. And he's an intelligent person, yet he has this weird extremism to, to his thought. He's also, uh, he's, he's also done a boiler room set in 2016. And these have all become platforms for his beliefs. Like at those shows, between tracks, he was there preaching anti science, anti vaccine, anti drugs. You know, that is. That is dangerous, whether or not we like it. And what's what's strange is that, for example, he gets a residency at Cafe Otto, which I'm pretty sure if you ask the owners of Cafe Otto, I think the head programmer, which we actually know, um, he he would be pretty appalled to be platforming anti-vaxxers. Yeah, he is, and that's that's really strange because there is no there's there's no getting away from the fact that there are people within the left wing community that are very susceptible to this, and they can end up being drawn. Is, towards some radical conclusions further down that pipeline. So Christopher, so, yeah. why have you decided to uh, platform him on our podcast? That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, I actually have two questions and that. It's like, one, what would happen, how would you feel if he was deplatformed as a result of this? And two, why do you think he hasn't deplatformed by people who have clearly watched his shows and it continue to put him on? Luckily, uh, almost like a setup, both of those questions contribute <laughs> brilliantly to the justification for me doing this because the long form format of this podcast allows me to do a good 15 to 20 minutes ranting about that and really get that out in the open to people that didn't know that. I mean, the people that first let me hear this, my, my mate Dave Warner, who's a, a fountain of great music, but Dave didn't know about this stuff to do with Lubomir Melnick. And so I feel by promoting the quality of his art but balancing it with the reality of what he says and what he thinks he's conveying with that art that's something that these other places can't do and I would say the reason he's not been deplatformed is because frankly they haven't checked and if they have checked they've written it off as being like just some harmless eccentricity which I don't really subscribe to I think the guy is brilliant but I think his beliefs are very, very problematic, especially in the current climate. And it's strange to say that about what seems to be like a kindly old guy, but he is contributing to a, a larger picture that is that is costing lives. That you can't really separate the two ultimately. Should he so, yeah. be deplatformed? Then do you think you should be? Do you think you should be like totally no, cancelled? No, well, no. But now you're talking about. I mean, do we do deplatform Michael Jackson completely? It's it's the exact. I'm asking same your argument. opinion. I don't. I don't have. I don't have. A, I don't have a, a horse race. I'm just asking what your no, thought is I don't, on. I don't think we should deplatform musicians based on those shifting sands. Uh, I think we should be aware of their history and then make a decision ourselves. So if Michael Jackson comes on in a club, I'm no longer going up to dance to it. The DJ's still got a right to play it. It's still a in tune but I've decided not to put my money or my body behind it and I think it's sort of I feel kind of similarly about this 
I, like I say, as you can probably tell, I've got really mixed feelings on it. I don't have like a firm, decided, this is my stance. But I think we're lucky we're in a position to really communicate the ambiguity of that. And people can make up their own minds. There'll be a lot of people, I know loads of people that don't give a shit. I know loads of people that love Burzum and they hate the guy, but they love the music. And that's fine. That's that's what they do and they are fine with that. And that is completely, they're entitled to do that. Um, but for the people that do like to know that kind of stuff well you know we've put it out there and maybe if more places we put it out there and rather than fawning over them it, it would uh, people would be a little bit better informed well, I don't know about you guys but we've spent a little bit of time talking about Melnick and time is kind of moving away from us at quite a rapid pace so I think right now is probably a good time to kind of put a pin in this episode and you know I know we've kept saying that we're not going to do long episodes so we're kind of filling that promise by turning it into a two-parter next week we'll pick up talking a little bit more about Mionix music and also the album so join us 